Welcome to the Circle of Birth podcast. I'm your host and advocate, Ali Kranz. These podcasts are here to gather stories, people and information to better our understanding of the wisdom of birth and how we can reclaim our connections to birth from conception and beyond. You will hear stories not only from Australia but from all over the world, bringing together women, partners, midwives, doulas and all the people that have a birth story to share. So jump right in for this next Circle of Birth story. Welcome to episode 30. Birth stories shared from midwives is probably one of my favourite kind and this podcast is definitely right up there as it shares a deep, rich tale of how passionate midwives can be in serving women. Hannah Darlin probably knew from the first moment she witnessed a birth as a young girl living in the Middle East that midwifery was just in her bones. The roots of Hannah's story runs right into the core of the wounded feminine. Hannah, a white female growing up in the Middle East, saw and felt what many women were subjected to in their basic human rights and reproductive decisions. In this podcast, you will hear of experiences that have created the woman that she is today. Silas work as a feminist midwife, being an advocate and the skills that she has to better the outcomes for women, birth workers and the decisions around that. From where she sits amongst all her work in policy shifting, education, research and public speaking, there is a mother and here is her story. Her story shows honour, love and guidance. So beyond all the policies and research, here is a woman that has experienced life and loss with love around this. Hannah shows the deep meaning in this podcast that she is a true advocate for women and shares a story with an open heart. This story contains loss, so if you're not ready right now, please come back later and listen. Thank you. Hi, Hannah. Uh, Absolutely biggest welcome and thank you so much for joining us on the Circle of Birth podcast. It's just an absolute honour to have you here with us and I know you're just probably a super busy woman and just to have your space here to share these stories. So thank you, thank you. Oh, my absolute pleasure. There's nothing I like talking about more than uh, than birth and how to uh, make it a, a better experience for, for women, um, you know, around the world. Yeah, and I want to start off with how I read your background story with the book Aussie Midwives by Fiona MacArthur and I read your part in Chapter 11 called Coming Home Again and this was quite a while ago and I was just absolutely captivated by your story and... I could just see how you are doing what you're doing now and I would love to hear more about that journey from you. Yeah, sure. Look, I I had a a really unusual life, I guess. If you you see me, you wouldn't think I've probably had the life that I have. I'm I'm kind of very Caucasian-looking and uh, very average-looking. But I was born in Yemen. Uh, my mum was a midwife out there. My dad was kind of a jack of all trades. He, you know, my earliest memories really were around my mum in the clinic with these veiled ladies and these beautifully painted hands coming over the edge of my playpen where I got corralled and uh, played with kidney dishes and uh, spatulas while she attended them. And my memories of holding holding people while my dad stitched camel bites and pulled, you know, infected teeth. So that was kind of my my early, you know, memories. And I grew up surrounded by women and birth 
and I don't ever recall a time ever in my life I wanted to be anything other than a midwife. It was almost like nothing else entered my mind. And um, when I was about 10, I remember seeing my first birth and being a little bit... um, startled by the fact that this woman woman laid so passively on the on the bed and this was in in our, one of our kind of um clinics and so obviously the midwives from you know their european training had had really absorbed the you know putting women on their backs and and oh, now I watched this woman give birth and it was all fairly you know unremarkable and and then when i was about uh, just just turning 12, just before I turned 12, I, my next-door neighbor um, asked me if I would be part of her birth. And she'd had... This was my best friend's um, sister-in-law. And she'd had two girls, and I was really thrilled to be involved. And there was a, a local um, volunteer midwife who was involved as well. And um, that was the birth that really... I guess changed it all for me and watching her give birth in her own home um, watching this you know perfect little being come out and then I'll never forget she looked at it realized it was a girl and she turned her head and said to me take it away and um, I picked up this perfect baby and I took it over to the window where the dawn was sort of breaking over the Middle East and the minarets were starting the first call and and I remember being completely spellbound by the fact that a woman could produce a complete, entire, perfect human, but also full of rage that because this this baby was a girl, that somehow it was a second-class citizen. And not a rage at the mother, because the mother was a victim of her own circumstances. She knew that if she kept producing girls, her two other children were girls, her husband would simply get another wife, because, of course, there was no understanding that it was the male that determines the sex. And and I'd say, you know, that was probably the moment that the feminist was born in me, uh, and the feminist midwife has, I guess, never left. It's always been a fundamental part of what I do. I, I will always say that if you're not there to make the world a better place for women, then you should get out, and you have to be a feminist to be a midwife. It's a, a, a fundamental core part of it. And, and the story about this little girl is that they ended up calling a Hannah after me, and um, that was a, obviously a, a really great honour. But when I went back to visit her when I was 23, and by this time I'd done my nursing, and I was on my way to England to do my midwifery, and I tracked her down, tracked her family down, and you know she was this um, really unwell, very sort of twisted body. Um, she had rickets from vitamin D deficiency. And, um, you know, and for me, she symbolized the invisibility of women in much of the world. And she had not had adequate care. She'd not had an adequate diet. And now if she ever married, she would be almost surely destined for, you know, um, high likelihood of ending up with a maternal death or or a dead baby because of her malformed pelvis. So... It was interesting going and seeing her again and realizing that this was a a really broad and huge job that I was now heading to England to do the kind of formal part of my training and get my piece of paper for. But I I suppose that was really the 
That was really the spark that lit the fire that's never gone out in, in my heart as a midwife. And have you seen much of a culture change in birthing in Yemen over the Look, years? Yemen is in, in a terrible situation at the moment because Yemen is, is in the midst of an unbelievable war um, that's destroying the country, but it's particularly destroying women and children and there's a terrible famine on. Look, there has been a lot of effort put into it, but Yemen remains one of the most dangerous places on earth to have a baby. Um, around 16 women um, in every 1,000 will actually die in their lifetime of reproduction. It's just, it's just horrendous to comprehend the um, amount of risk to have a baby. And those aren't just because they don't have good care. They are because they are still being married off far too young. Their bodies are not necessarily healthy because they haven't had the best of diets, so their pelvises are not necessarily uh, a, a developed and good size to um, give birth in. There. I mean, my friends were married off from the age of eight onwards. And, you know, they, they were giving birth when they were just girls. And you know, I, I, my next door neighbour, and I, you know, another another sister in law of my best friend. You know, she was married at fourteen, and she had a horrendously long labour, and she gave birth to a stillborn baby. And I'll never forget looking at that baby with its really elongated head. She ended up with a lifetime of chronic, um, you know, incontinence and pelvic floor damage. And then her husband gave her up and married a newer, younger woman. So, you know, it it was a um, it, it's a culture where women are invisible. Um, many women still uneducated. Women have no voice. They are controlled by their their brothers and their fathers. And you know, the mo- wherever you go in the world, where women are not seen as as important and given voice and given value and given equality, you will always see not only the maternal and child health being a massive problem, but you'll see that the society as a whole is never as progressive, enlightened and productive as where, when we give voice to women and we give regard and, and equality to women. Mm, well said, yeah. And do you still have contact with your very best friend that you had in Yemen? Look, I, I tracked her down. Her, her, her story is also very, very tragic. I mean, she was my best friend. We would spend... You know, many an hour I'd finished my correspondence lessons because I kind of self-taught because my mother was busy with my six siblings under the age of seven teaching us all. And I used to quickly do my lessons and go over to her place where we'd cook dinner and then we would go into her tiny, she had a tiny little room which was the grain room and there were sacks of grain and there were dried apricots and, you know, I remember sitting there on the grains of the bags of grain and we would just tell stories and we would create worlds outside of the limited world that we had and then I left when I was 15 and she was 15 and her father married her off to a man who was in his 60s um, she was a second marriage she had a very miserable time with him uh, he eventually divorced her moved on to yet another wife and she then went to become almost like a servant in her brother's house and he then sent her overseas to um, basically um, nanny his daughter who was going to go overseas to um, get education. And she married another man who she was his second wife and then he divorced her as well. And now I finally tracked her down in 2008 in Sheffield in London, in England, and I caught up with her. But um, yes, again, I haven't, I haven't kept 
track with her. She doesn't speak much English. My Arabic was getting a bit rusty by then. And um, certainly, again, she, she represents a, a life where women have no voice and no equality and no ability to become educated and self-determining. Mm, yeah. And was there any lessons that you found that your mother passed over to you during your time there um, from observing and watching um, and being a part of the birth system there? Yeah, look, my mother... Um, so my mother was, was... She did her midwifery... I mean, she, she actually was, grew up in India um, and her, her parents worked over there, but she did her midwifery in England. She was actually part of that whole... called the midwives scene where she worked in the Docklands of London and um, actually worked in the original Nanata's house that's in that famous... Uh, call the midwives show which is actually called St. Fried's Wife's Mission not in an artist's house at all and I went and visited when I went back to the UK a couple of years ago but she worked with Jennifer Worth in 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 that house and and she filled me with stories of cycling around the Docklands of London of her very first birth as a student midwife in in the Docklands was undiagnosed twins and you know I, I I think I got you know I grew up on a recipe of women have babies and it's not such a big deal. And I didn't grow up on the kind of complexity and the inadequacy that I think we have now in Western society. So I would say, even though I saw lots of terrible things and I heard of lots of terrible things, I was surrounded by a culture where we're giving birth what women do. And there was, surprisingly, even though the risk of dying in Yemen is probably one of the highest risks in the world, there wasn't the same fear that I think we have today in Australia where it's one of the safest countries in the world to give birth. And that's a certain irony about the role of fear and the role of a culture of birth that we have that catastrophizes birth and doesn't, um, you know, give give credence and uh, to women's capacity. So... I, ironically, I think I had much more faith about birth in, the, in a country where there were worse outcomes and um, in the UK where it's very much was seen as part of a woman's life as well. Compared to when you come back to Australia, I think we have a very, very fearful and frankly destructive approach to birth. And ironically, even though we are incredibly liberated, women are incredibly bound and oppressed by the fear that they have and the the messages of, of lack of capacity that our society has embedded in women's lives today. Mm. Could you reflect and say that could have something to do with having too much choice in this culture here in Australia, um, being that, you know, what you witnessed in Yemen was just birth and that's, that's what it was. Um, and sometimes here that fear comes around with uh, too much information, too much choice and not the right support there to help guide that into the birth? Look, I think we have over-intellectualised birth and that does come with education and advantage and having fewer children so we have more time to think about these things and plan the perfection that we want and the perfect child that we want. And, and I think we also have in our society an awful lot of pressures around the good mother and what does the good mother look like and unfortunately that's become polarized in the uh, in the discourses the, you know that the, the woman who takes control and goes and has an elective cesarean polarized down the other end with the woman who 
you know, shuns all medical intervention and uh, does it all a la natural. And, and I think that's really, really unhelpful. Uh, I think it's tough to be a mother. I think getting through it and giving your child love and, you know, being able to smile and see joy in it is, is what a, being a good mother is about. It's not about, you know, all of those little things that people get caught up on and whether you're back in your size 12 jeans within four weeks of having a baby. So I think there's an awful lot of unrealistic uh, pressure and expectations put on women in Australia that didn't exist in a country like Yemen. I mean, you know, being being a mother and being a woman was what your whole destiny was. You actually didn't have those other pressures. And, you know, that, that came with both good and bad. I, I think, though, when you talk about too much choice, I'd actually argue that women don't have enough choice in Australia. We we do say, you know, that women have choice. So, for example, you can choose to go to a birth centre, you can choose to go to a hospital, you can choose caseload, you can choose, you know, public funded home birth, but can you? If you don't know about it, and you often don't know about it, and you don't get booked in early enough, you're not going to get into caseload. If you don't happen to live near a hospital that has it or happen to live in rural, remote Australia, where it almost does not exist, a midwifery model of care, if you don't happen to live in the catchment area for the birth centre and get in early enough um, and not get screened out because, you know, you, you managed to sneeze in the wrong place on the booking form, so you're not <laughs> low enough risk, you know, and if you yeah. don't live within, you know, seven kilometres or 20 minutes or whatever the definition is of the one of the 12 um, public funded home birth programs, then you, you don't get into that. So, so I'd argue that on the other hand, while we say we have a lot of choice, I actually think we don't have a lot of choice. Mm. We have a lot of one option, and then we do everything we can to obstruct women in getting hold of anything else. Mm. Yeah, it seems like we have, it feels like we're liberated and have a lot of choice, but then, like you said, the choices are always um, choose option one, and then there's option sub choice A, B, C, D, and then they've got all mm-hmm. got their options and their labels, and then it's quite confusing when you're just trying to in- intuitively birth your baby and connect there, isn't it, with there's so much mm. around to, ch- to, I guess, yeah, you're right, like to, to choose from, but then there's always limitations to that choice. It's yeah, I mean, you can choose to have a publicly funded home birth, but oops, sorry, you're out of the catchment, or oh goodness, you're GBS positive, now you're out of the program, or... You know, it just or oh, sorry, we've now our midwives. Um, we've had to take them into the delivery ward because we haven't got enough midwives. And so, you know, I think I think we have a great illusion of choice. But I think the biggest illusion of that choice is actually we have very bad information out there for women. And I think one of the major problems is the GP is the gatekeeper. So women who are first pregnant go to their GP. Now GPs do not tell them about all that's on the menu. And if they don't tell them that early enough and they don't advocate for them, women are going to miss out and women don't know. And the other problem we have is if you, if you, um, you know, uh, circulate within your group of friends, so if you're in the North Shore of Sydney where, you know, I, I'm located and you go to the mother's group in the coffee shops with those women, then you think that the only option really is a private obstetrician. Um, you're not aware that what risk you're walking into when you select that option. You're not aware of what your other choices are. Nobody sits down with you and says, well, tell me about your hopes and dreams about birth. What do you want? 
let's find a model of care that you know meets what you want. And if you want to have hand over all responsibility and, and have a cesarean section, then absolutely private obstetricians the way to go. But if you haven't got that in mind, then that's a way to end up very devastated and traumatised about your birth. Mm. So I, I think we do a really bad job in informing women and hence we have a really big problem in choice. Yeah. So going back to your journey uh, with everything that you experienced and saw uh, in the Middle East and then coming into your nursing and then midwifery in England, if I'm right, Uh, you sort of described how you went through a similar situation where you started to see birth in as a practising midwife in a bit of a fearful way um, Mm -hmm. where you had to sort of bring back together and find that core of what what birth meant. Yes, well, I did only did my nursing to do my midwifery because we didn't have the option in, when I did it back in the 80s of being able to go straight into midwifery like we do now, and I would have certainly chosen the latter if, if that had been open to me. And I also wanted to go to England because of the stories my mother had told me. And, you know, there was very, midwifery back in, in that time, back in the 80s, was very, very, very backward in Australia and very medically dominated and very embedded in nursing. And I really wanted wanted to have a um, an empowering education and, and I, I really do believe I got that and I was able to go out in the community and I was able to do domino births and home births and, and I had an I came back to Australia very confident um, as a midwife feeling ready to take the world on and I worked in a lovely little hospital in uh, New South Wales called Auburn where you know we had very very little medical input except when you wanted them we got on very well with the doctors and it had a fantastic midwifery environment and I um, loved it and I became you know very skilled but I I also felt that going to the big tertiary referral hospital was obviously my next step and I wanted to experience you know drama and uh, develop my skills in high risk and so I went off to RPA as the educator and later on moved into being a consultant and I, I would say I became less skilled and I became more fearful and even though on paper you know I was very skilled and I say I can you know I could suit you in the dark and cannulate in my sleep and I could do all of that drama stuff but I was coming really bad at facilitating normal and then there was this moment and I at this point I'd I was always very curious, so I'd gone on and done an honours and a master's, and I was now well into a PhD. And I'll, I'll never forget uh, this young woman walking down the corridor to, in, to the birth unit. She was having her first baby. She was Asian. Her husband was Caucasian and tall. She was little. And I remember just looking at her before she even reached the desk, thinking, oh, my God, this is going to be a big baby, a long labor. This is going to be a disaster. She'll need augmentation. You know, we're going to end up with fetal distress, um, forceps delivery, shoulder dystocia. And before she'd even reached the desk, I was already thinking about the legal case. And and I just thought, I have to get out of here. I, I can't. This is not why I went into being a midwife and how have I become so undone by my own fear and that was it for me I went I went into the university sector and became an associate professor of midwifery but I have always my whole career I've been a clinician I've had a long clinical career and I missed women and babies so much and then I was really lucky in 2010 I was the president of the Australian College of Midwives when a whole lot of reforms were coming in for midwifery with Medicare and insurance and 
And it was all part of the, you know, going up and doing the Senate uh, presentations and lobbying and rallying outside Parliament House. And, and I thought, you know, Hannah, this is what you've always wanted to do. This is where you came from. It's time to have the guts to go back there. And I joined up with Melanie um, Jackson, who was my PhD student at the time, said, I really want to form a group. I didn't want to work as an independent. I didn't want to be a lone ranger. I wanted to work in a group. And we approached um, Jane Palmer and Robin Dempsey, and they said, yes, no, no, we'd love to work in a group. So we stood up midwives at Sydney and beyond. And then I, I went back to, after all those years, to going back to my very first home birth again. And it was incredible. I just realized I was home. I realized that's where my heart is. I realized that what had been missing for all those intervening years was the relationship. And I actually could never go back now because I think to not have a relationship with women is unsafe for midwives, but mostly it's unsafe for women because women need to have trust. Women need to know that those little things about them are known. So when birth comes, that you have all of that in your mind. You know about their their, their trauma history, you know about their sexual abuse, you know you know that they hate lavender, you know that they don't want to be massaged in that spot, you know that their mother-in-law is the one they don't want in the room. If you know all of this about a woman, you can keep that space safe. And if you keep that space safe, then birth happens. Um, we complicate birth. Women's bodies are perfectly capable if we set up a trusting, safe environment for them to do it. Mm. Well said. There's there's just so much to be said for anecdotal evidence too, isn't there? That the women's stories are how a midwife or any birth worker can grow into into their profession. Um, oh, absolutely. The, women the, yeah. women teach you ninety percent. The textbooks teach you ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, looking at your own birth journeys, I would love to hear how you, as a woman. Um, transformed with your birth of your children? Mm. Well, I, when I, before I had my first baby, uh, I um, had, was doing my honours and I had decided to do my honours on basically finding out the birth, what birth experiences women at home in hospital had, almost as a, you know, a, a rather thorough investigation of what I would end up doing for my own birth. Um, most people don't go and undertake an honours in order to work out where they want to be. And it was really clear to me when I'd finished this research how different the women's experiences and how much more positive and powerful they were when they gave birth at home. So there was no doubt that that's what I was going to do and there was no doubt in my mind that I needed to go find private midwives so that I could be outside of the system and have that allegiance to me, not allegiance to the system. And so I found two fantastic midwives, um, Shaker Police and Cheryl Sidery, and uh, they took me on. That was my first girl who's 18 now, um, back in 1998. And I went two weeks overdue. That challenged everything about me. It made me realize that I am a very ordered and controlling person, and I expect everything to happen when I expect it to happen. And this was one of the great first lessons of motherhood, which is you're not in control of much once they come out. And, you know, I think pregnancy and birth help us learn those lessons of release. And anyway, I had um, a fairly... I, I planned to have a baby at home. I laboured at home, and um, that was fantastic. Very, very happy memories, except my waters broke when I was about four centimetres, and I had really thick meconium 
In fact, I could only describe it as like lava coming out, and I'm pretty sure it was because I was overdosing on the castor oil to try and induce myself being 42 weeks. Anyway, we transferred into hospital. I had a, a normal birth, um, which was wonderful. I did end up having a retained placenta, which had to be removed in theatre. And, um, you know, I've, I've never felt more powerful in my life that I did it. Um, even though I need, uh, had to have a transfer, I did it, and I pushed out a very big baby, and it was the making of me. On one hand, yet the other hand, I struggled very much with motherhood because it is so out of your control. And I learned a lot of lessons about my own personality. And I thought that was as tough as it would get. And then I got pregnant um, uh, about three years later with um, a, my second baby. And, of course, we were planning another home birth. And this time it was going to be, you know, the lucky second, which just slips out and it was all going to be easy and... I'd had a lot of concerns during the pregnancy that I seemed to be measuring quite big, but it wasn't really baby. There seemed to be quite a bit of fluid on board. I went into labour, I laboured and laboured and laboured, and uh, eventually my midwife said to me, this isn't normal, we need to go into hospital, on which I locked myself in the bathroom, which is every midwife's you know, nightmare, and said, nope, I'm not going to hospital, this is going to be at home. Uh, and eventually they made me see common sense and I did agree um, and went into hospital and continued to labour for another 12 hours. By this time we're up to 27 hours for a second baby, which wasn't, wasn't normal. And, you know, having tried everything, I ended up having a cesarean section, which completely devastated me. I, I just couldn't. It was never in my plan. It was never, it was never going to happen that way. So it was totally, totally, you know, traumatising and shocking. However, um, you know, my little boy came out, Luke, and he didn't breathe. And, you know, I'll never forget him being resuscitated in the corner, thinking, oh, my God, I've done this to him because I've so wanted to have a normal birth. It's my fault. And um, after a couple of days, and he had significant um, brain injury, and he ended up, they thought, well, it was... You know, just they, you know, it was something that hadn't really been picked up on CTG, etc. And we had to switch his ventilator off. And um, he died two days after, you know, a perfect full-term baby. And that was, you know, incredibly. The only way I can really describe it is if someone takes your entire world and and turns it upside down and smashes it. You know, it's just, it, it, there is nothing more, um, there's nothing probably that undoes a woman and a, and a man more than the loss of a baby. But when you're a midwife and you feel that you should have known better or done things differently, you know, it was not only it was grief, but there was guilt. And we had an autopsy done because we, you know, I always felt there was something so different about him. I constantly said I can't feel him move the same way. I was really, really worried, but nothing, nothing showed up as problematic. And the, you know, the autopsy came back and they couldn't find anything. And so we went on and we got pregnant again within three months. In fact, the autopsy hadn't come back at this stage. I was already pregnant. We got pregnant with Ethan. And the same thing happened. A lot of fluid. I was worried about the movement. I kept going in, getting ultrasounds done. They kept saying, how much more perfect do you want this to be? You're just a worried mother who's lost a baby. This isn't you know, how you'll be. 
And um, again, went overdue. I tend to go 42 weeks with all my babies. And Ethan was just nowhere near my pelvis. He was lying oblique. They couldn't get him to go down to my pelvis. And eventually I, you know, surrendered to another cesarean section. And um, he came out and he didn't breathe. And then they all suddenly went, oh, my gosh, we missed something. And we then had to go through 11 days of tests to find out what was the genetic thing that obviously was linking these two boys that had been missed with the first boy. And they, you know, it sounds very horrible, but they did have some tissue remaining from Luke and they finally looked under the microscope at it. The only test that would have identified this, they didn't do. And they realized that that he had um, this sort of what's it called a large cell disease where there's a missing nucleus in the in the cell and they found the same with Ethan but then we had to go through the whole there's so many kind of muscular dystrophy varieties that they had to take tests from me and my husband and had to be sent to Vienna and, uh, and they told me it was like looking for the word and in the book War and Peace to find this one genetic code that could perhaps give us some insight and um yeah and he had it so not not only was it one in a million but then i wasn't a carrier and neither was my husband so it was like you know one in 10 million or something incredibly rare that happened to us but basically it's x-linked which means boys are affected and girls aren't but they carry and so we were faced with the dilemma of you know well what what do we do if we want another baby because we've got 50% chance that our boys will be affected. Now, the irony of Ethan was he was both the worst thing that could ever happen, and he was my redemption. In And that sounds terrible, but he made me realize it wasn't my fault what happened. And that was that was really huge, having felt guilty for so long. Mm-hmm. So... In some ways, after Ethan, I would say I became stronger than ever. I realized all of the judgments people had made that, you know, it was a choice I made. And if only I had booked in, you know, and had my care through doctors, you know, this wouldn't have happened. And, of course, it was the doctors who missed the diagnosis. Not that I'm blaming them, but, you know, we do a lot of judging and blaming without all of the facts. And so at this stage, we've lost two full-term babies in two years. Um, and, you know, in fact, we gave birth to Ethan on the day anniversary of when we'd buried Luke a year before. Mm. Um, and for me, I thought, well, this, that's going to be, you know, it's, it, when, they, when they opted for that date, I went, well, that's a sign. It'll all be perfect. He'll be our gift. It'll all be made better. And, you know, it was unbelievable when that happened twice and having to turn two babies' ventilators off in a year is, you know, more than most humans are asked to bear. But we really, I always, the irony was that when we were going into hospital to have the cesarean for Ethan, we got the time wrong, and we went to Bronte Beach, and that's, you know, a beautiful beach in in Sydney. And I sat in the car while Malcolm and and my husband and my little girl uh, Lydia played in the waves, and I had this really powerful image of this fat little baby girl and I thought that's it that's the baby I'm about to have because we'd never had you know we'd never found out the sex and um and her name will be Bronte and she'll be fat and she'll have dimples and I saw it all as clear as anything so I went into that cesarean with Ethan 
thinking that's what was going to happen and it all went pear-shaped. But in the back of my mind, I still felt there was this gorgeous little girl out there. And anyway, we tried. We, we went through the whole line of trying IVF and that, that when I was, that, that failed. And then I got pregnant on a blue moon. Now, why that was so significant to me is I gave, I got pregnant with Lydia on a, on a full moon. I, both my boys died on a full moon. And when I got pregnant on a blue moon, I knew with absolute certainty this was, this was this little girl coming. And, um, you know, we had to obviously go through the testing to confirm it. And she was a girl. And um, when she was born, she was my fat, dimpled baby that had been waiting out there in the universe <laughs> to come. But you know, the and, and you know, people will say, you know, do you have, do you have regrets? Do you, you know, are you angry? You get to a point when you actually can't because if I regret um, Luke, I regret Ethan. I then if I regret Ethan, you know, I basically there would be no Bronte if none of that had happened and I can't imagine a world without her. So I'm now very much in a in a in a state of total acceptance, you know. There are things that happen that are beyond our control. Genetics is one of them and the lessons I've learnt from what we went through, you know, all you can do is make something beautiful out of those. So I do a lot of teaching now and uh, you know doing workshops and lectures on grief and loss and I'm able to now give back to women uh, when they lose their babies and I've been through some lovely journeys with women who've lost babies before and being able to be there through that terrible uncertainty is it's really really special it's really special when you've walked in their shoes to be there it's it's utterly different so with Luke and Ethan and their, in a sense, the short lives that they had but the gifts that they gave to you with their mm. life and I really just resonated then when you said Ethan gave you the gift of redemption um, mm. and this the growth into, um, like you said, Bronte and mm. here she is. And is, it, is there anything during that transition from Ethan and becoming stronger that you uh, pulled in the support or any tools that you could Mm. share with the listeners that might be helpful especially facing another pregnancy or making Mm. that decision to heal yeah look I'd say that the number one thing that I haven't mentioned is that I had the same midwives through Lydia Luke Ethan and Bronte they were there through every step of the way they came to the funerals they were there for the birth they were there for the sorrow and they were there for the joy and you know I cannot imagine going through this without that without that relationship without that love you know it would be enough to destroy a person but I would say have a relationship with someone. Do not surrender yourself to a nameless, faceless system because what you are going to experience is the most incredible challenge of your life. So find yourself a good midwife or midwives who will go on that journey with you. That, that is, you know, incredible. I remember meeting a woman who'd seen the... Because our, our story was made into a film then called Hannah's Story, which we now use all around Australia for teaching around grief and loss. 
And I remember feeling this woman who'd lost a baby and, you know, only a woman who'd lost a baby could ever say this to you. But she just came up to me and she said to me, I'm so jealous of you. And, you know, what she was jealous of in that film was the love I had around me. And so you can go through this and it can destroy your life forever because of the, the, the you know, the, the silence and the lack of warm arms and, and the lack of kindness and cruelty. Or you can go through this and you can be surrounded by love and you can you can become stronger and you can become better. So the number one thing for me is the relationship. The number two thing for me was believe in women when they tell you something's wrong. And, you know, seeing those obstetricians afterwards who'd done, you know, ultrasound after ultrasound telling me I was a worried mother and then looking them in the face and saying, you know, you've got to listen to women. And when I got pregnant with Bronte, you see, after having that experience with the two boys, I had no worry because she was strong and moving and she was normal and I knew it. And so I think the other thing that I have become so determined about is listen to women, listen to what they're telling you. They have knowledge and they have mysteries that we can't even begin to comprehend. Um, So relationships and listen to women have got to be the, the most important things to get you through it. And, you know, time, time, you know, don't, you know, don't. This is a this is a journey that you'll go on for your life. There are very happy days and there are really sad days, but you have to give yourself time, and the journey and the lessons from it change over time. I think I'm a much better midwife now as a result um, because I think number one, um, I listen to women, <laughs> and I know how important it is to listen to women, and that's probably the greatest secret any midwife could ever learn in their career. Wonderful. It's just so refreshing to hear that, and it's so important. I'm just reflecting. I know I went through a loss um, a few years wow. back, and that exact same feeling. I remember the intuitive, intuitive feeling when I was pregnant that mm-hmm. something wasn't right, um, mm-hmm. and then and then having that support as well, that if I didn't have my midwife to be there um, going through that loss, where I would have went or what system I would have put myself into. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes that feeling's not correct, but we need to sit down and explore with women what their fears are, and then we need to check up on whatever it is they're identifying as fear. And then often, most of the time, we can then reassure them that actually... You know, everything is okay. But it, for me now, the opportunity when women address, when women bring up their fears, they, I address the possibility of what if everything didn't go right? What, what would you do? What would you want? What are those worst-case scenarios? Because there's a sort of silence in society around it, you know? You're going to have a perfect baby. Is nobody wants to talk about it. And I used to say to women when they'd say, I'm really worried my baby might die, oh, don't, you don't, don't think about that. That's not going to happen to you. Well, you know, I never say that now. I will always say to a woman, so tell me tell me why you think that. And when you think that, what goes through your mind? Let's have a chat about it. So, you know, I, I think that we've got to stop dismissing it because, you know, the moments of tragedy and, and um, sadness and worry in our lives are the opportunities for learnings. They're the opportunities for preparation. So, 
you know, we should embrace them and go on that journey with women, not try to dismiss them. Mm, yeah, well said. And especially during pregnancy when you're completely open to transformation and change and yeah. then you need to heal a lot of uh, yourself, especially first-time mothers. There's so much yeah. that will come up for them that they'll need to have that safe space to share and transform. And I think you've just raised a really critical thing. And this is, it's interesting. I've watched the evolution of my, my research, you know, over time. And, and I'm really now moving, all my research is moving very heavily into this birth trauma um, space. And, you know, I, uh, the more and more I do this job and, and now when I go on, on those journeys with women and many of them have birth trauma and you, you go on this journey of, of hopefully this being a redemptive birth for them and this healing some of that trauma. But pregnancy and, and birth, they are the most vulnerable and vul- they're, they're enormously vulnerable transitions in our lives, as is, you know, um, certain periods in childhood and puberty. And, you know, we have these points in our lives where I say that, you know, we, we almost can put our finger through the veil into other worlds. And pregnancy and birth... In order to do that, in order to have a baby and to be so vulnerable, you must have trust and you must feel safe. And when we abuse and violate that trust in that point of vulnerability where we have so much oxytocin going through our bodies, endorphins, etc., that are opening us up and exposing the complete rawness and vulnerability of, of our beings, when cruelty and harm happens then, the damage is far greater than any other point in our lives. And I'm hoping that in the next 10 years, it's as recognized as is going to war for the soldier as causing you know, irreparable harm to women's bodies and minds and then families and then society as a result. That's the conversation that's urgent today. Yes, we're saving women and babies, but we're damaging women and babies in ways that are unseen. And, you know, I'll often say there are dead women walking in our society and there are dead women who are mothering and there are dead children who are being mothered by dead mothers who have no joy and no heart and no confidence. And that is an absolute disgrace. Because today, more than ever before, we should have it all. We should have safety, but we should also have, you know, emotional, psychological, um, cultural, spiritual safety, not just that very narrow definition we are trapped in, which is all about physical safety. Mm, well said. Yeah, uh, just, uh, again, it's it's that birthing for humanity, not just ah. for each individual it's it's such a it's a human rights issue now (laughs) it's massively a human rights issue and you know if only we could show that that hand that rocks the cradle indeed rules the world and be so focused on making sure that that hand which is that mother and that father but particularly that mother is a is a happy strong confident hand because the child who is the product of that hand, is the one that steps from the cradle and becomes our future. And so, you know, um, the way we give birth can fundamentally be the way we live. It can be, you know, birth can be the absolute representation of of the future of humanity. And and I think it's that critical that we get it right. And this is exactly why I'm just, um, I have so much gratitude for especially the likes of yourself to come on and share these stories because if we 
keep them hidden. Um, stories are just such a powerful and important tool in our culture to help this change happen and manifest empowerment in families, women, men, anyone. Um, it's it's just a lot of these podcasts that I've recorded have such a, a core message of what you've just explained, uh, mm. just told in a different story. <laughs> Mm. Well, making babies is, is, you know, is about falling in love. Why have we changed it into being a a clinical procedure? It's about falling in love. And, um, you know, I think I I, I look at my job. I'm a celestial matchmaker. Um, I have the greatest job on earth because I can be part of that falling in love and make sure that it begins well and hopefully then, you know, endures. And that's so such a precious role, yet midwives, unfortunately, we've been so reduced to, you know, risk management and, and check boxes and, and making sure everything's in place. And, we're, you know, we've forgotten. We've forgotten the heart of what we're doing, which is being there when people fall in love. Yeah. <laughs> and just quickly, could I just talk about Bronte's birth again? Um, mm. I, I know you said you were feeling quite strong in the pregnancy and mm. the labour. Did you have the sort of option to have a cesarean again or what, what sort of decisions did you face? Yeah, no, I have skipped over that, what happened with Bronte. No, I planned a home birth. So, <laughs> you know, that, that certainly got everyone worried. I had delegations from my parents and everybody else, like, what the hell was I doing? I'd lost two babies and I'd had two cesareans and... You know, what was I doing? And my midwives were very much, well, you know, these are the risks. And so, you know, let's play it by ear. And, of course, I did what I did with the others. I went overdue again two weeks. And um, and eventually I decided there, there was a point in my mind, and this is why, again, it's so important to listen to women, where I just went, okay, I've pushed the boundaries far enough. And we decided to have an induction. So I had um, a Foley's catheter put in overnight and... I walked and I nipple stimulated and I did everything I wanted because I really wanted to have my vaginal birth. Um, after all that, all that trauma, it was going to, you know, for me it was really, really important. And um, anyway, nothing, nothing really happened. And I then had the came to the point of, okay, do I then accept? And we had an ARM and all of that um, oxytocin. And for me, that was that was a risk too far. Uh, you know, I, I know the research that when labor starts by itself and, you know, you don't kind of force it, that the outcomes are really good. The moment you start putting up syntocin and then start to to force babies down, then you start to enter into that risky zone. And it just became really clear to me at, at a certain point that when I was facing that, that, that I wasn't going to go down that line. And so eventually we agreed um, to a cesarean section. I think everyone was very relieved. Um, and but but having said that, you know uh, the feeling of you know the feeling of first of all hearing a cry after having had two babies in that environment with no cry, and secondly the feel of her and uh, you know on my, on my chest and and I'll never forget looking at her and thinking this is the baby that I've always had in my mind. And then I spoke to her and she just stopped crying instantly, and she just looked at me and that connection was so so powerful. So while I would have loved to have had a vaginal birth, I've never come away from that feeling in any way um, traumatized because I actually feel that on all the way long I had my choices respected 
and I pulled out when I felt any this was no longer um, a, a boundary I was willing to cross. And I think that's the difference. It's not so much whether you have a cesarean or vaginal birth. What's really critical is that you've been listened to, you've been respected, you've had choice, and, you know, that that's always been present. And I had it all, and I had all of that, and I had my same midwives in the theatre with me for when she was born. So for me, yes, I would have dearly loved another vagina birth. I must say I look back at Lydia's birth with great relish that I have had a baby vaginally. I have, have pushed her out on my own. And that is so important to women. And I think we underestimate how important that is to women. So because I've had that, I probably don't have that level of regret that I would have had if I hadn't already had that amazing experience. I I always say Lydia was given to us first so that we could bear what was to come. And um, she certainly certainly was the lighthouse in the midst of the storm. Mm, What a beautiful moment. I'm just visualising you um, with Bronte and coming onto your chest and her just stopping Mm. crying and, yeah, just, Mm. wow. It's all in the film as well. It's really quite lovely. So you'll be able to send me the link so the listeners can access it somehow or is it part of... Well, it, it, look, Shay, who is my midwife, who is also a filmmaker, she took all the footage and she took footage herself and she made this film called Hannah's Story. So she only sells it. I don't have anything to do with the selling of it. Um, she sells it for education. So it is on her website, um, shaykapleece.com, Um And it is expensive because she only sells it to educators for education. She didn't want it to become, you know, too, you know, frequently observed. But there are certainly shorts of it on her website um, that you can... You can see there's clips of it, so you can see what the film's about mm-hmm. if, if people really do want to buy it. it's I don't know what the cost is now, but it's not cheap. <laughs> well, it'd certainly be worth perhaps if people just put together, I suppose, and ha- had a screening or anything like that. Mm. seems to be quite popular these days, hosting yeah, screenings. Yeah, well, I use it. I use it when I do um, grief and loss for the student midwives. We use it in all of our teaching for that. Uh, just another little question that would interest me. What was mm-hmm. your first birth like as a midwife? Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I've, I'm, I'm sitting here right now looking at the picture on my uh, mantelpiece. And I'm, it, well, uh, you know, as an actual student midwife, not counting the ones I caught as a child or, you know, experienced as a child, <laughs> that, that was great. And I'll never forget that they didn't tell her that was my first birth. <laughs> And um, it was an amazing feeling. She came out and she's got the mo- this little baby's got such black hair. And then the, the sister said, "Well, she did very well for her first. And the woman looked at me and went, "Oh my gosh! If it had been, if I'd known it was your first, I wouldn't have let you do it." <laughs> but I've got a picture on my mantelpiece of that first yeah. birth, and it was wonderful. It was wonderful because I felt like the journey that I'd been on for so long had now officially got started even though I'd started it long before in an unofficial capacity. Mm. Were you wrapped with nerves or you just got wrapped into the process? No, not really. Um, it, was, it wasn't her first baby, so it's kind of just, you know, you're just caught like you really do. I think we've made the science of actually delivering a baby to be far more than it is. Um, you know, once it gets to that point where there's a head coming out, then... They come out. Guess what? Their mothers <laughs> push them out. The greatest, the greatest job is getting a woman to that point. It's about keeping. I mean, people say to me, "What's the most important role of a midwife?" I go, "It's simple. It's keeping fear out of the room. 
If you can fear it, keep fear out of the room, you give space to love and trust and that's what you need for birth to happen right. And the greatest skills of a midwife, as have been said by, you know, far wiser people than me, is, you know, the art of doing nothing well. And um, if we can learn to do nothing well, and that nothing is not doing nothing because we're, of course, massaging and crooning and putting hot packs on and filling up tubs of water and, you know, looking at women and telling them with their eyes that we believe in them and they can do it. But that art is sadly being lost and is now needs to be reclaimed because we don't, you know, we've got to get over this this belief that we're somehow the experts that, that women need in order for them to give birth. No, no, they give birth. They've got the power and the ability within them. Our job is like a coach at the start of a marathon. Our job is there telling them that they can do it, that the distance is, you know, they are capable, that, you know, they've done the preparation, that we're there, we believe in them. That's our job. Our job isn't to run the marathon. Oh, fantastic. Is it, you, are you going to advocate to get this in your curriculum at some point? Because I think that would be a perfect <laughs> subject. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I agree, but you know, I've really struggled with how do we get this across. And I, you know, I had to relearn a lot of my lost skills when I went back into caring for women in in home birth situations. And I, I honestly think that when we have relationships with women, a magic happens. First of all, they trust us. Second of all, we trust them. You know, we then want. We become invested in them because we think, oh, we really love this woman and family and, and we, we know all about her. And so we become invested in, in, in making sure that all those little things along the way, whether it's the language we use or the skills that we, we um, you know, share, all those things are in place so that when they come to give birth, they really do do it. And they, they do it in their own capacity and they feel proud and confident in doing it but that comes with relationships and it comes even more in a woman's home because you're in her space so you you can't strut around go and get on this bed and do that and you have to go well can you just tell me where the kettle is and I'll fill it up or do you mind if you know you're in her space you seek permission you're you're humble in her space and that's why I think home is is so extraordinary and really giving women back the power that should be theirs anyway. Yeah, I, just reflecting on my birth recently was at home and um, I just knew that that trust thing, I trusted my midwife but yet I trusted myself more because this mm. was my responsibility and this was my birth. Um, yeah. And to look at it like that was just huge for me. Um, uh, just it's, it's a huge thing to grasp sort of when you – have your fir- my first birth, I pretty much just jumped on the conveyor belt um, yeah. and went with the program of what birth was. Um, and then to have this experience where everything was really brought down to me and the support around me. Um, yeah. and it was just such a huge contrast and empowering. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and no matter what the outcome would have been, um, just like you described with Bronte, I would have been the one that was responsible and making those decisions in a mm. supported environment. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. We can't underestimate the power of of that, um, mm. you know. And, and, you know, the woman who comes in and hands over is only doing that because we've constructed a system that tells her that that's what good, good women do. You know, we've, we've constructed that expert 
we've constructed the fear, we've constructed our rooms, you walk into a birthing room, what's in the middle of the room? It's the bed, it's the monitors, it screams, you know, you know, it screams, you know, disability and, and lack of power and emergency and, and surrender. And so we've, I often say our birthing rooms are the stage and why are we surprised when the play unfolds as it does? Because we created a stage that is set for it. So if we change the stage and we change the the way that the play is meant to happen, we can actually change everything that happens in that in that environment. Mm. And so you have a little bit to do with um, policy um, and advocacy, of course. And how do you feel the system's heading now? Uh, especially in regards to home birth with a lot of changes to the legislation next year or this year, mm. I think it's happening. Um, mm. how, how do you feel, you know, in your own experience and um, th- I guess this stage has sort of been further and further driven away from... Mm. I, I agree and I think in some ways it's getting worse than ever. Um, I think that... You know, we've made great gains and I think that we're experiencing the backlash of against the great gains uh, and that sometimes happens when you make progress and you challenge the status quo, you will get the backlash from those who want to hold the power and the system, um, you know, secure for themselves in the way that it's always been. I think women have got to get angry and they've got to get active because if women stood up and said enough, this wouldn't happen. But how to motivate larger numbers of women to realize that this is vital, that this is an issue for humanity, not just, you know, how a baby emerges from your body at that point. Um, I think that's critical. I think policies is really critical to have good midwives on all these committees, but even more so, and I am such an advocate of this, it's important to have consumers on on these committees. I've sat on, on the New South Wales Health Committee for many, many years. I'm still on it. And I tell you, those consumers were the ones who, when we were all crapping on about, you know, how we thought it should be, would then just just ask a question that completely made you realise, goodness, we're not even thinking about them. This is all about us. We're constructing this for us, for our efficiency and to reduce our risk. So I think we have to get much more serious and not just, you know, give you know, token and token uh, kind of acknowledgement to consumers. We have to be willing to incorporate consumers into every aspect of policy development and consumers have got to get active and, and consumers have got to realise, and I always say to women, you know, when we do a transfer, I always, you know, if we're going to do a transfer, I prepare them. You are the most powerful voice in that room. No one can do anything without your consent. You have absolute right to either agree or disagree with anything that's going to be done to you. But so many women don't feel that, and they walk in and they just feel that they have no voice and no power. So how do we get to the next generation of women um, and, and, you know, make them understand that they are the most powerful person involved in this. And this is, again, exactly what you were talking about before. This is human rights. This is why I'm going to India in uh, in January and February to speak at the Human Rights Conference because at the end of the day, the most pressing issue for maternity care is human rights. That's the thing we have not got right and that is the thing that today is killing mothers and babies. And I'm, when I say that, I'm saying, you know, suicide... Maternal suicide is one of the, the number one leading causes of death now in the Western world, and we are not making it 
safer by traumatising women psychologically and not supporting all those other important aspects of safety, not just physical safety. Thank you. Just to wrap it up, Hannah, what would your ideal of birth be in Australia, your ideal system? (laughs) (laughs) Look, my ideal would not be about me or what I think is ideal. My ideal would be that every woman um, has the opportunity to have the kind of birth she wants and where she doesn't have the kind of birth she wants, she is totally understanding of the reason for what happened, that she has a relationship with an honouring, respectful midwife, and that all the care options are freely available, accessible, and are funded. And I think if we could, if we could get that right, then, um, well, I think we'd frankly get the world right. <laughs> well, it begins at birth, so you're exactly right. Mm. <laughs> Thank you so much, Hannah. I'm again. I'm just so much, so grateful for you to take the time, and I just can't wait to share this. And so, big thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And did you connect with this episode? Then head over to our website, circleofbirth.com. There you'll find show notes, pictures, resources, and potentially connect with today's storyteller. Don't forget to sign up to be updated with new empowering episodes and content. Help the show grow by contributing a tip in the jar to make sure we can continue to better the podcast and connect more and more to the wisdom and birth and each other. Hey, and don't forget the iTunes rating. This has been another episode of the Birth Share Project. We breathe, we birth, we empower. Mm-hmm.